Our scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 6. We're going to have verses 1 through 18. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the, under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you, whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. I love that passage so much. I'm not preaching on that passage. You guys can have a seat. But I love that passage. Uh, good morning. It is great to see everybody today. I'm excited to be back in this building preaching. I've uh, preached to the, the masked mass once before outside in the parking lot, but I haven't done it here. Uh, so it's great to see all of your eyeballs. Uh, I'm excited uh, about this text today. Just a reminder that we're continuing in our series in Romans. Dan will be back next week as he talks through suffering and what, what that looks like in particular in the life of the believer. But let's pray and then we will break open in to the word. Father, we come to you today knowing that it's your words and your words alone that bring life. Father, is there anything in this world, from this world, originated in this world, that can cause us to live? There isn't anything that can surpass the greatness of who you are in this world. And, and so often, the temptation is to hear and listen and believe voices and words from the world instead of your words. And so I pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be attentive to what you actually say in the word. Father, by the very word of your mouth, new creation is ushered into human hearts. It is miraculous. It is amazing. But it is absolutely true. 
And I pray that as we open the word today, Father, that you would be magnified, you would be glorified, and you would help us to set our affections on that which doesn't change, ultimately, Christ Jesus. So, Father, I pray today that as we open the word, you would build your church, you would guide us, and you would help us to obey from the heart. We pray it in your name. Amen. Okay, so... um, when I was getting home from Bible college, I went to Bible college. I, won't, um, I don't know what year it was. All my years of Bible college kind of like um, merge because I didn't exactly graduate on time. Don't worry about that. I know the Bible now. It's fine. <laughs> but one year I was coming home from school, and I had no idea this was going to happen. But when I got home, my parents said, we have a surprise for you when you get home. And I'm going to tell you what. To this day, it remains one of the absolute best surprises of my life because when I got home, I saw in the driveway a sparkling, shiny, wonderful 2001 Toyota Corolla. Can I get a whoop whoop? Yes, the Toyota Corolla is the jam. When you don't have a car and you've never, you, 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 don't, you don't have a car, you don't know what you're going to do, you're coming home for the summer and all of a sudden your parents hand you the key to four cylinders of action, you know that you are excited, right? And so they told me, this is yours, it's paid for. Not only is it paid for, we gave you insurance on it so you can drive it right now. And I don't think it was like but five minutes I had been home from the airport. We got home from SFO and I was like, see ya, I'm gone, right? And so here's what happened. My parents give me the keys, I get in, I turn it, I hear those four engines purr like a jungle cat ready to get its prey. I'm ready to go, and all of a sudden I look down and I realize, that's a manual transmission. <laughs> At this point in my life, I don't know how to drive it, but no matter, I'll figure it out. This is my Corolla now. And so I went off, and I put it into first gear, and I stalled it five times in a row. You know how it goes. But I was delighted. It's not like I was mad every time I stalled it. I was like, oh, let's keep starting, fantastic. And I went all around the whole Fairfield that day. I remember driving all over the place, and I would sometimes flood it. Sometimes I would like, you know how when you start in first gear, and it just, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You've only driven an automatic, and shame on you (laughs) for that. But it was a great thing. I had this awesome freedom. Now, and I enjoyed it, and I got married in that car. Rochelle and I drove to our honeymoon in that car. And when it came time to move to California, we literally put a hitch on that car. And hauled a trailer through the mountains of Montana. So the Corolla's, man, was a great gift, and I enjoyed every second of having it. And now, if you have that in your mind, the idea of the gift of the Corolla, I want you to understand one thing about it. I enjoyed very much being able to use the car, but I also was under the obligation to actually use it. Okay, now I want to I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying. When we get a gift, we are under obligation to use a gift, right? So when my parents give me the key to a car, the natural assumption is that I should do what with those keys? I should put them into the ignition, start it, and then go drive around, right? I think oftentimes when we think of the word obligation, we think, hmm, that means I owe somebody something. The gift was free. The insurance was already on it. Here's the keys. Go enjoy. Even though it was an obligation for me to use it, that's the very nature of a gift, I still really, really enjoyed it. And I wanted, I desired to be in that beautiful beast. It's what I wanted to do. 
the reason why it's important that we get this correct is when we come to our text today, and it is in Romans 8, uh, we are in verses 12 through 17, and, and I'll read it for you here and then we'll break into it. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I come today to a transition text so far in Romans, we have started with in Christ, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if you remember Dan's first message, and by the time we finish up Romans 8, it's going to say that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So you've got assurances all over the place, and a matter of fact, every single message that Dan has preached so far has been a message primarily of assurance that comes through the finished work of Christ on behalf of believers. But we come to a transition text that uses the word debtors. Now, I want to submit to you that when our natural minds see the word debt, we do not see this as a positive thing. So when it says we are debtors, immediately we think, what am I indebted to? What do I have to do? What do I have to do to start earning? Because if debt is there, that means I need to earn something or I need to pay back a favor. Okay? Now, if that's your idea of debt, you're never going to get and understand the treasure that's going to be in these next verses. But if your idea of debt is more along the lines of obligation, which many of our current translations, as a matter of fact, some of you probably have a Bible in here that it says, brothers, we are under obligation. Under obligation. If you get it kind of correct, that the idea is under obligation or in debt does not mean that I'm trying to pay something back. What it means rather is that I gladly desire to use it. Okay, does that make sense? I gladly desire to use this thing which I've been given. So I want you to have that in your mind. I hope that it helps. Afterward, if it doesn't help, tell me so that in second service, I totally scrapped that analogy. But I think and hope that that will work for you. So let's break into the text. This is what it says. starts in so then, in verse 12. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. So the debt applies, or the obligation applies to what preceded it, not what's about to come after it. Because immediately what comes after it says, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So verse 12 would say, the flesh, the old system of life that you used to live to, that we just read in Romans 6, has been executed in Christ Jesus. The flesh no longer has mastery over your life. You don't have to live according to the flesh. The flesh hasn't done anything for you to deserve one more minute of allegiance. But, God has done something for you. And so there's a so then. We are debtors. So what is the debt? What is the obligation? Well, let's remember what so far what we've learned in Romans. And this is, I have it here on my notes, and you can just listen in. But if you'd want to turn to the first 
verses. I'm going to go through 1 through 11. Verse 1 starts out saying that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 says that the Spirit has liberated us from slavery of sin and death by the work of Christ. Verse 3 says that God sent Jesus to be a substitutionary atoning sacrifice to bear the penalty of sin and that Jesus was victorious over sin. Verse 4 says that we who have been justified by the work of Christ can now walk according to the Holy Spirit and that, we, and that as we walk, we are empowered to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Verse 5 says that we are now free to live each day by the power of the Holy Spirit and that we are able to set our minds. We get to set our minds. We can actually think about and desire what the Spirit desires. Verse 9 says that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Verse 10 says that the Holy Spirit makes our very spirits alive, and because of that, we have the righteousness of Christ. And verse 11 says that that same Holy Spirit that indwells us was the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And because the Spirit dwells in us, one day our dead bodies will be raised victoriously through resurrection by that same Spirit. Can anybody give me an amen in this church? So do we have a debt? Yes, we have a debt. Is it a debt? When I read that word, is that debt, I better pay God back for what he did. Man, if you've been in Parkway for any amount of time and you just answered the word yes, we need to disciple you. The answer is no. The debt is not owed to paying back. The debt is now that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and all of the positional holiness of Christ. This is critically important. Now that you have the positional holiness of Christ, God sees the finished work of Jesus in you, his righteousness applied to you. Because you have positional holiness, you are now obligated to become practically holy. That's the obligation. And guess what? It's not a sad thing. It's a super excited thing. It's like when I got the keys to the Corolla times a billion. When we get keys handed to us like that, that we have the very spirit of God that indwells us, and guess what you get to do? You get to now live the spirit-filled life. That's the obligation. That's the indebtedness. You get to use it. And let's just reframe this one more time. We are debtors. So the implication, or, or it's inferred, that we are debtors to God, not to the flesh. And so the first thing we have to say is, how many of us here today define our existence more or less by the Spirit of God or by the flesh? What is the primary mode of existence that we live in? Are we people that find our definition from the culture of the world around us? Are we people that get most of our fulfillment from the words of other people? Are we people that are looking to the advancement or the achievement of position in this world to give us some sort of comfort? Or are we the kind of people that know our position because of the work of God? And because of that, we now act a certain way. That's just a, a small challenge. Now, Paul's line of thought in Romans is that all of this, all of these promises came to you by way of the Spirit. 
Okay, now it's, it's important that we get this because we know, if you look back at those verses, verse 1 through 11, it says that God is there. God sent Jesus in, in, uh, in verse 3. It says that the spirit of life has set us free in verse 2. And it says that Jesus did things. So we have God the Father, we have the spirit, and we have Jesus operating together to bring about redemption. And so our salvation, our promises, our life is wrought to us by a triune God, which is an incredibly amazing thing. But all of our benefits of being in Christ come through the power of the Holy Spirit. I could not ever choose in my life to be in Christ. I can't just be like, I did it. I'm now in Christ. No, I needed the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to awaken my spirit so that I could believe by faith. If faith is a gift, that means I had to get it from somewhere. And I couldn't have manifested it from the dust. The Spirit came into my life and made me alive while I was dead. And because of that, I can now see the glory of the gospel that came through the Holy Spirit. Now, we talk about this a lot, that, that our life is being united to Christ through faith. And that's true. That is true, and it is nothing less than that. But for you, believer, there is more to it than that. You are in Christ through the Spirit. He is continually holding you now in his power, and he is conforming you to the image of the Son. This is what the Spirit does. And so this is what Paul is arguing so far in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit has applied all of these benefits to you. You couldn't have brought it up on your own. This was spirit applied. And because it is spirit applied and we have the spirit, guess what kind of lives we get to live? Spirit directed, spirit focused lives. That's a great thing. It's super encouraging. And you should be really excited about that. Now here's where I think the rubber meets the road for so many of us, we say, Adam, that sounds great. Yeah, I got the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, that's awesome. Um, I love all the benefits. Now, how do I go about living by the Holy Spirit? And you're gonna get, if you clicked on an article on the internet, and if you typed into Google, hey, how do I live according to the Spirit? You're gonna get about 100 different answers. So my goal today is not to give you my version. My goal is to argue from the text what does Paul say the spirit-filled life looks like? Now, this text is not meant to be totally exhaustive because there are other passages that show us that living life by the spirit looks um, similar but different in certain ways. But I wanna argue from Romans and I wanna show you Romans' perspective and I wanna show you the benefits of what that looks like. So, this is what it says. Verse 13, 4 you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I want to make three observations about this verse that I think are really important. Uh, before I do that, I want to say one thing. Many people have read this text as a warning passage, that you had better continue in holiness or you're going to be a goner. Let me tell you why I don't believe that. First, Paul says, brothers. He says, brothers. If, if he was writing to people that were not in Christ just like himself, he wouldn't say, brothers. 
But he starts with this, this really intimate term. Brothers, we're of the same family. And the other idea is that this is just a statement of fact. If you were to go back into Romans, starting around verse 4 and up till now, there has been six occasions in which Paul has said that living by the flesh equals death or some version of that. So what he's saying here is, this is not a warning. This is a statement of fact. Flesh people live according to the flesh. Remember Dan's sermon from a couple weeks back. Those who have their minds set on the flesh are hostile to God. They cannot please God. But those who have the Spirit can set their minds on the Spirit. Remember that? Okay, so here's the idea. If you're of the flesh family, you can only do flesh things. That means even your pursuits to be better are ultimately only ever propelled by your desire or need to please the flesh. So if you get better, it isn't because you want to relate to a holy God and you want to do it out of thankfulness from your heart. You do it because in some way you want to be seen by a God who will then maybe let you in somewhere one day. The big difference. So fleshly people can only live according to the flesh. People who have the Spirit, now this is equally true, can only live by the Spirit. Now I want to, I want to remind you, this is critically important, in Romans, we are told that justification through Christ has already happened. And at the end of Romans, we're going to get to a point that says your future glorification is secured if you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, it is a, it is a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. So you have on this side justification, which is secure. You have for those who are in Christ, your glorification is secure. And in the middle, everything else in between is called sanctification. Becoming more like Jesus over and over again. That's another word for pursuing holiness. When that happens, we live. Now here's the deal. If your glorification is secure, and living, that's what this word live in the text means. For those who put to death the deeds of the body, they will live. That living means eternal life with Jesus. So if we argue backwards, who are the people who live? The people who live are the people who by the Spirit are putting to death the deeds of the body. So do you have the Holy Spirit? It is a statement of fact. It is an equal equation that you will be somebody who puts to death the misdeeds of the body. And why is that? Because we do have the opportunity to set our minds on Christ, according to verse 5 of Romans. It's important for us to understand. This is not a warning passage in the traditional sense of warning. When we read it and we say, I better get busy being holy or I'm going to get, man, I'm going to get burnt up to a crisp. And can I tell you, practically, a vast majority of the people that I talk to about holiness, the vast majority of people that I talk to about sanctification view it mostly as a negative process by which they are paying God back for what they've been given. This is not what the Bible teaches. And if you are living your life out of the strength and exercising of your own will to try to master behaviors in your life, it's only got one of two results. Either it's not going to work and you're going to be fully depressed, or it is going to work and the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to have pride in your heart because you did it. 
If your efforts bring your holiness, then God looking at that and accepting of it would be considered wages. But that's not how we're saved and that's not how it works. We receive it by faith. And because we received it by faith, our whole life is lived out in obedience to that faith. That's what this means. And I hope that that's exciting to you. But I want to give three observations from verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The first one is that it's by the Spirit. Our desire to become more like Jesus isn't something we are responsible to manifest on our own. Okay? Our desire to become more like Jesus isn't something we are responsible to manifest on our own. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you know that your desire comes from the Spirit. Your desire to be like him comes from the Spirit. If your belief is that somehow you have to muster up the strength, you will always and forever be disappointed. And you will always look at sanctification as a painfully long, terrible process by which you are only ever resolved to just be nothing more than a sinner who can't ever get it right. Does that sound like the victorious life in the Spirit? Now, I want to be exceedingly clear that living life in the Spirit is not like, today I conquered another sin. It doesn't work that way. It's a battle, okay? But this is the idea. It's by the Spirit and not by us. Second is that effort is implied in verse 13. Effort is implied. And here's why I say that. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. This is not a let go and let God situation. This is not as long as I believe the right things, there's grace, baby. There's grace upon grace upon grace, so I'll do whatever I want. That's not what it means. Now, is there grace upon grace upon grace? It says in chapter six, yes, there is. But should I keep on sinning? By no means. But there is a strain of theological thought that is gathering steam in our world today that says grace is such a powerful force that I could never, ever really live in obedience to God. And so it really doesn't matter what I do. You don't find that teaching on the pages of anywhere in the New Testament. So if you're somebody who's living life saying, more or less, I'm just going to keep looking to Jesus, but I don't need to change. So when I feel bad about something that I've done, and I know that I've offended, or I know that I've sinned, but you let yourself off the hook and say, but there's grace for that. And you never try to bring it into alignment under the power of the Holy Spirit. You never try to actually get rid of it, but you just kind of argue it away. That's the idea of assuming grace in your life. And what that does is it cheapens grace. It doesn't magnify grace, it actually cheapens it. So, it doesn't say, so I say, if by the Spirit, the Spirit puts to death the misdeeds of the body, it says, by the Spirit, you're gonna do it. You have a responsibility. Now, I know I just said, man, look at all these promises that came, but this is what 
a willing heart that has been changed by the gospel, that does have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to guilt you into this. What I'm saying is that if you are a saved and sealed believer and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, guess what? Your desires and your affections are going to come along for the ride and you will want to do these things. Now, it doesn't mean that you get saved on Wednesday and Thursday. You're like, and God said. You don't do that. What happens is Day by day by day, you remind yourself of your identity. You continue to look to the word. Day by day, you're in community with people that tell you you're not like that anymore. You live this way now. Day by day, you remind yourself of your positional holiness so that it plays out in your practical holiness. But you are involved in the process. You're involved in it. And then the third observation from 13 is it says, put to death the deeds of the body. Notice what it doesn't say. Compartmentalize. Just try to do something different. Let's try a little bit harder. I don't know. What this says is there are deeds of the body, and if you're confused about what deeds of the body means, come talk to me afterwards. I can show you from Romans that it means sin. Okay? So this is what it means. You need in your life to murder sin. Now, when it says put to death, it means put to death. It means you need to see the sin in your life and have a desire not to harbor it and just move it to the side and not to be like, in 2027, I'll deal with that. This has been a heck of a year. That's not, our, that's not what we're obligated to do. That's not what we're in our debt to do. We're in our debt and we are obligated by joy and desire that when we see something in us that doesn't match the deposit that we have in the spirit, we say, I don't want that in me. I don't want this. And because I don't want it, I'm not gonna merely just slide over the top of it. I'm gonna fully get rid of it. Now, here's an example. I recently got my yard done. If you all wanna drive by and oogle and all at it, that would be great because it took four years to get it done. But for over those four years, during the rainy season, weeds would pop up out of the dirt. And for the first couple of weeks when there's just a few, it's looking pretty manky. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie to you. It looks pretty bad. And I you know, have a choice in that moment. I can go out there and I can one by one pull them up by the root or I can spray Roundup that will actually get down to the root to kill them. But there's something else that I can do. And this is what I did. I waited until there was just a few more of them. Then I just mowed over the top of it. And you know what's hilarious about that? It looked kind of good. It looked like you know, some of the neighbors would be like, hey, looking good out there, neighbor. I'm like, these are weeds, man. This does not look good. How bad has my yard been that mowed weeds make you feel like this is a very good thing? <laughs> but nonetheless, I believe this is a spiritual principle that happens for you and I. That we are the kind of people that in dealing with sin, we mow over the weeds instead of pull them up by the root. Because it is by far easier to somehow modify our behavior in some way than to get to the root cause of why I behave that way. Right? So it'd be really easy to be like, going keto, about to lose 150 pounds, it's gonna be amazing. And I put this behavior modification in my way. And I assume that once I get that taken care of, other things are gonna start to fall in line. But I have to remember, I got this way for a reason, right? Somewhere down there, there's a reason 
why this is there. No, hey, this is not, not all about me. You all got your stuff. So whatever I'm saying, tell, you know what yours is, but there is something in your life that is, by nature, something you need to pull up. And instead, what you do is you mow over it. Because for a couple weeks, it looks okay. For a couple weeks, the neighbors are going, nice job, buddy. But the moment another rain comes, or the moment it gets above 70 degrees, out pop the weeds again. And you're reminded, I haven't got rid of them. All I've done is conceal them. Brothers and sisters, can I just say that in my experience, 20 plus years of being in church, personal experience and experience from counseling tons and tons of people in my office, this is the primary way that we deal with sin in our lives. We don't want to expose ourselves to God because we're afraid. We're motivated by fear. We're motivated by being found out. We're motivated by what will people think of me? And so rather than pull up the root and expose it for what it really is, and rather than get rid of it, we just mow over it so those very same people will be like, he's getting better. No. You're not under obligation to mow. You're under obligation to pull up from the root. And can I be honest with you? Man, that's hard. Like, I know that I'm preaching this message to you, and all week long, I've been like battling with this idea of like, that means I gotta do it in my life too. And it's not pleasant to realize maybe sometimes you get a little too angry. And it's not pleasant to realize that maybe you have a behavior pattern in a certain way that's destructive. The only way that I'm ever gonna bring it in submission and the only way that I'm ever gonna kill it is by allowing the spirit to deal with it now. This is the incredible promise. This is what's great about verse 13. It says that, yes, I do need to be putting the, uh, to death the deeds of the body. Yes, it is me. Yes, I need to be murdering it, but I don't do it by me. I do it by the Spirit, which means that the Spirit partners with us to give us the strength and the ability to carry out what normally our own willpower would not do. See, believer, Christian, saint, you have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what this whole text has been about. And he's saying you're obligated now to live with that power. But we do have a choice whether or not we use it. We are right on the precipice of having a spirit-filled life. We're on the precipice of battling with sin. And we can choose in those moments to say, I'm okay with the way that I am. And far be it from any one of us to ever say that. I hope that that doesn't happen. But in the scriptures, we are told that we can grieve and we can quench the spirit. We don't want to be those kind of people. We want to be the kind of people that delight in, desire, and love what the spirit does. And here's something else I wanted to say. Ephesians 6.17 tells us that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. In scripture, we are giving one implement. We are given one tool. We are given one thing that's capable of allowing us to murder this sin in our life. There's a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which means, brothers and sisters, what's here? What's true about you? 
who you really are is the only proper motivation to ever battle sin. If you're going to try to be holy outside of what is written in the words of Scripture, you are going to stumble and you are going to fall. But here's what it looks like. We have positional holiness. Remember what I told you? When I read you that first list of things that God did for us in the first 11 chapters, did, did you read that and think, man, that's a burden? No, you responded with an amen, which meant in your spirits, you're like, that's who I want to be. When we gaze at the scriptures, when we gaze at the glory of God, we are changed from one degree of glory to another, being conformed into the image of his son, and this comes through the power of the spirit. Okay, the Bible alone isn't what will cause us or be the instrument by which we can put something to death. However, the scriptures illuminated by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life makes you alive to the realities of scripture, thereby causing you to want and to desire something you never knew you wanted or desired. Does that make sense? So fighting against sin in our life looks a lot less like making lists of the things we don't like about ourselves and a plan for how to eradicate them, and it looks a lot more like knowing how to preach the gospel to yourself moment by moment. You wanna know how you're gonna change? You're not gonna change by saying you're a miserable person. You're not gonna change by saying, oh, I did it again. You're gonna change when you look at Jesus. And you're gonna change when you read the gospel. And you're gonna change when you hear that you've been justified. You're gonna change when you heard that there was never a time when you weren't on the mind of God and that everything in this world works to your benefit because he's conforming you to the image of his son. That is who you are. That's your identity and that's the motivation that propels you to fight. If you think you have to fight from your own resources, you will never win. But the moment you realize that the battle is already fought for you in the spiritual realms by the very same spirit that Raise Jesus from the dead? What won't I give him? Why would I leave anything out of the equation? Why would I just mow over? You know, in my life, there are weeks when I get to preach. I love weeks when I preach. Not so much with the family time. My wife can attest to that. I'm sorry, I apologize. Pulling it up from the root right now confess, spent a little too much time in study this week, but you know what I love about preparing for a sermon? There are so many anxieties of my life and so many thoughts about myself that I don't appreciate, that I don't like, but guess what? When I'm studying, when I'm looking, when I'm pushing further, naturally they start to go away. Not because, oh, I've somehow found the magic elixir no, because this is exactly what God says, that as you look to me, as you submerge yourself in the truth about who you are that's found in the scriptures, these things that hold your heart like prisons will start to unlock. And it's not to the praise of my effort, but it's to the praise of the work of the Spirit in our lives and for his glory. So church, can I just challenge you? Preach to yourself. Read the word, not in a sense to get encouragement today. 
Don't just read the word and be like, man, I can't wait to get some encouragement. That's a good thing. But read the word as if later on this afternoon, you're going to need to preach to yourself. You know what you're going to need to say? I'm not from this place anymore. I don't go here anymore. This isn't what defines me. I don't know how much time I have left. I'm going to keep going. So i got two more things to say. The first is this. When I first started working at this church um, four years ago, I was living on the state streets behind Holy Spirit. And so we were renovating our house on Miller Drive, but here I was, and I would pull out of the driveway of this church every day and turn right. That's how I got to the state streets. Then one day, after we renovated the house enough, we're still in the process of renovating. Don't buy a house you need to renovate. But when we were in the process of renovating it, it meant that now home was left. But because home was always right to me, do you know what I did? And I'm sure all of you have this experience. I just turned right. Anybody have this experience where you just, you're just in the habit of going somewhere and you just turn right? Now, this is kind of like how it is spiritually. You have a positional holiness. But your whole life you've been living as if you didn't. And so your natural inclination is to keep living more or less the way that you always have. So when you preach grace-filled many sermons to yourself, it looks like this. You don't live on East Utah anymore, Adam. You live on Miller Drive. You're by the soccer fields now, son. You turn left. You gotta read the word that way. You gotta pray that way. God, give me the strength to be able to remember who I am because of you. Give me the strength to remember that I live left. And now here's the great part. When you come to the driveway and you're about to turn right or about to turn left, you know what you get to say? Lord, help me turn left. There isn't any part of the sanctification process where God isn't involved in it. It happens by the Spirit, through the Spirit. It's an incredible and amazing thing. Here's my final one, and I want to leave you with this. So many people's understanding and experience of sanctification is one of fear. It comes from fear, and you are motivated by the fear of maybe if you don't do enough, God won't let you in. Well, this is what it says in Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I could preach a whole sermon on just that, and a matter of fact, last year I did, so this is my plug to go listen to that. I think you'll enjoy it, but I wanted to just, I gotta leave the adoption part. It breaks my heart to do that. Know that's a reality of you, but I have to leave that because I wanna tell you three things about fear. You did not receive the spirit of fear. So, if your primary way of relating to God in your life is fear-based, we have a dysfunction. Something isn't working correct. We need to go back to the source and realize what is it that's causing this fear? What is it that's causing this anxiety? Because Romans 8.5 tells us that the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Now think about this for a second. The process of murdering sin in your life, does that sound fun? 
Here's what the Bible tells us, though. When we have the mind of Christ, when we are led, in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit to go into battle against our sin, fear isn't the dominating force life and peace is through the Spirit. So even when we have terrible things that we've done or terrible things that we have to deal with, do you know what ultimately the net result down the road is? It's gonna be life and peace. I wanna finish with Romans 5.5. 5. It says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's how we're supposed to relate to God. Love, peace, life, putting to death the deeds of the body reveals that in you. So church, we gotta be busy doing that. And when we do that, I need to preach another sermon here, but when we do that, later in the verse it tells us that the Spirit attests with our spirit that we are actually his and we get to use the intimate name that Jesus used in the garden to call on God. Jesus was the first person ever to call God Father, Abba. And here, because we have his spirit, guess what we get to do? In the throes of battle, in the midst of anguish, as we're murdering sin, we get to use that very same title that Jesus had. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for who you are, so thankful for your word that it is true, that we can know you, we can bank on it. God, we love you. We pray that you would help us. Help us, God, to trust you enough to be honest to trust you enough to be open and to bring all things in submission to your will, even the things in us that we really don't want to change. We pray it in your name. Amen.